the obligation of covenants. A discourse, delivered, Monday, June 27, 1803. After the dispensation of the Lord's Supper, in the Reformed Presbyterian Congregation, Glasgow. By Samuel B. Wiley, A.M. Pastor of the Reformed Presbyterian Church, Philadelphia. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet, if it be confirmed, no man disannuls, or addeth thereto. Galatians 3:15. But first give their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. 2 Corinthians 8, 5. Third edition. Printed by Stephen Young. 210, High Street. Dash, 1816. Contents. Introductory Remarks. Head 1. Preliminary Observations. Head 2. Distinction between intrinsic obligation of covenant and previous obligation of the moral law. Head 3. Prove the transmission of covenant obligation to posterity. Head 4. State the reasons of this descending obligation. Head 5. Morality of the duty of covenanting in New Testament times. Head 6. Endeavor to show the times and seasons when a church and nation are called to it. Head 7. Objections stated and answered. A Discourse Nahum 1, 15 Behold upon the mountains the feet of him, that brings good tidings that publish peace, O Judah, keep thy solemn feast, perform thy vows for the wicked shall no more pass through thee, he is utterly cut off. The text is, perform thy vows. Man is a dependent being. He has his existence from God and everything calculated to render life comfortable, is derived from the same source, Acts 17, 28. For in whom we live, and move, and have our being. This dependence necessarily supposes obligation to that being from whom he holds his all. The rule whereby his relation to the supreme governor is regulated is the moral law. All its commands he is bound to obey. The substance of these is love to God and our neighbor. To assist in the fulfillment of these important requisitions, God has instituted various auxiliary means, in the diligent use of which, the end is more likely to be obtained. Among these we find vowing or covenanting unto God, solemnly enjoined by His divine authority, Psalm 76, 11. Vow, and pay unto the Lord your God. Vowing and covenanting are, in Scripture, often used indiscriminately. They both imply an obligation which the vower or covenanter, imposes upon himself, by his own solemn act. Vowing, however, may be considered as differing from covenanting, in this, that the former does not necessarily suppose more than one party coming under obligation, whereas the latter necessarily supposes two. With respect to religious obligations, these terms may be, and often are, used indiscriminately. In the constitution of the everlasting covenant, one God has become a party, and all the religious obligations, into which he commands his people to enter. In this transaction, God the Father, representing the Trinity, stood as one of the high contracting parties, bound by the solemnity of an oath, Hebrews 6, 17, 18, where we are informed, that for evidencing the immutability of this counsel, and for the consolation of his people, he confirmed it the covenant, by oath. Hence a line, from ale which signifies an oath, is the name assumed by the Trinity, 
whereby they represent themselves as bound under the obligation of an oath, to the performance of certain conditions, stipulated by covenant. In allusion to the eternity of the engagement on the part of the Trinity, it is predicated of them, previously to the creation. Hence the first mention of deity in holy writ is in the plural number, under the character of the swearers or the covenanters, Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning alive, the swearers or the covenanters created the heavens and the earth. God the Son, as mediator, representing elect sinners, stands as the other party. He, in their name, has fulfilled the conditionary part of the covenant, and sealed it with his precious blood. When the representatives covenant with God, they only say Amen, to what Jesus has done, and solemnly engage in the strength of grace, to a conscientious performance of all commanded duties. Hence all these engagements of the people of God are grafted upon the mediatory fulfillment of the covenant of grace, and every duty unto which they engage, respects the law only as a rule of life in the mediator's hand. All evangelical obedience must be considered as flowing from, and evidential of, a vital relation to the covenant head. Hence Isaiah 56, 6, God calls it a taking hold of his covenant. This new covenant instrument, therefore, is already subscribed by the Trinity, and vowing, or solemnly binding ourselves, to the performance of what it requires, is only appending our signature to that eternal deed. Vowing, therefore, is only another name for covenanting, and consequently these words shall be used indiscriminately, in the following discourse. The matter of which covenants ought to consist, is, every duty, which God requires of man. And as the solemn feasts of the Mosaic economy constituted a considerable part of the Jewish ritual, they are figuratively put for the whole, and the nation called to the observance of them, as duties unto which they were bound, not only by the command of God, but also by their own covenant obligation. Hence in the words of the text, O Judah keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows. In the prosecution of this subject it is intended, 1. To make some preliminary observations. 1. Jehovah, Father, Son and Spirit, is the supreme governor of the universe, Revelation. 19. 6. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. 2. All power, whether physical or moral, is naturally, necessarily, and independently in him. 3. He has delegated a subordinate, physical power to his creatures, in the different parts of his vast dominions, to perform all necessary functions, in the spheres assigned them. To rational beings, he has delegated besides, a moral authority. This is common to angels and men. Our business at present, however, is only with those of our own kind. To them he has given power in the various departments of life, to perform acts of self-government corresponding to their respective relations. We find the exercise of this deputed authority, commended by the Spirit of God, Proverbs 16, 32. He that rules his spirit is better than he that takes a city. In the exercise of his power, every adult may lawfully engage, bind, and oblige himself, by promise, vow, oath, or covenant, to act as becomes one in his circumstances. 4. The subjects of this delegated power are, first, persons or individuals, in their personal or individual capacity second, corporations or societies, in their corporate or social capacities. 
As in the human body there are various members fitted for the performance of various functions, according to the laws of their natural organization, all subordinate to the good of the whole so in a corporation, there are various individuals, engaged in different pursuits, organized into a corporate capacity, regulated by laws, subservient to the mutual interest and advantage of the whole society. Thus the Apostle, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, for as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. In the last clause of this verse, Christ mystical, or the church, is represented as being such a corporation. Moreover, in Ephesians 1, 23, the church is expressly styled his body. 5. This delegated authority cannot interfere with the obligation of the moral law. It would be impious and absurd to suppose that God gave man a law, suspended his eternal happiness or misery upon the observance or violation of it, and at the same time authorized him to violate it, and wage war against the throne of the Omnipotent. See the words of the Divine Legislator, Deuteronomy 12, 32, What things soever I command you, observe to do it thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. 6. As no command of God can increase that infinite authority which he has in himself, so no obligation, under which a rational being can lay himself, can increase the infinite obligation of the divine law, or make a moral duty of itself more obligatory than it was before. We cannot make our natural relation to the supreme governor more intimate than it is already, consequently we cannot draw the ties of the rule which regulates that relation closer than God has made them yet all lawful engagements have a superadded, voluntary self-obligation in them, rendering the omission of duty, and the commission of sin more criminal than otherwise they would have been. 7. In the law of God we find the institution of covenanting. This law requires of us the performance of certain duties. It has appointed means for facilitating that performance. It requires the diligent use of these and among others, it requires solemn covenanting with God, as a noted mean of holiness and sanctification of life, Psalm 76, 11, Vow, and pay unto the Lord your God. The obligation of the divine law or the morality of the duty is not, however, the formal reason of covenant obligation. It is the personal act of the covenanter, which constitutes the formal reason, why a duty when sworn to, is binding as a covenant duty. Were the morality of the duty the reason of covenant obligation, then all mankind would be formally covenanters, because the reason extends unto all, inasmuch as the moral law binds every man. Thus covenanting would be indeed a mere cipher, and carried no obligation in it at all, for it does not affect the morality of the duty, that being the same before as after covenanting. 8. There is therefore in covenant an intrinsic obligation, distinct, though inseparable from the obligation of the moral law. Every moral obligation is inseparable from the moral law. Moral obligation respects us as moral subjects, as such the moral law recognizes us in every relation in which we stand, as bound by every obligation under which we come, and requires the performance of every duty to God, to society, and to ourselves. But though this obligation is inseparable from that of the divine law yet it is distinct from it, and belongs to the very essence of a covenant. Had a covenant no intrinsic obligation in itself, the law of God could never require us to pay it. Pay what? Payment supposes that a debt has been contracted. But what is it? According to the hypothesis it is nothing. 
Would not this be trifling with the divine law? But this suggests it. 2. Head, which shall consist in an investigation of the distinction, which exists between the intrinsic obligation of a covenant, and the previous obligation of the moral law. And 1. God in his law binds us by his own supreme authoritative command, Deuteronomy 12, 32, What things soever I command you, observe to do it thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. Here God as the supreme legislator, binds us to the performance of duty. But in our vows we bind ourselves by our own voluntary engagement, see Numbers chapter 30 throughout. They are called our vows, our covenants, our oaths, and etc., because we make them in the exercise of that delegated authority, which we hold of God, the supreme governor, to be employed by us, in subordination to his glory. 2. Both the matter and manner of covenants ought to be candidly examined, and the rectitude thereof clearly ascertained. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, we are commanded to prove all things. This examination ought to be conducted by the moral law, the touchstone of all equity. Isaiah 8, 20, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. But to examine, that which we know to be the law of God, that we may determine whether it be right or wrong, would be the greatest presumption. To question its rectitude would be to arraign the governor of the universe at the tribunal of carnal reason. 3. The divine law binds all men to complete perfection in holiness, be they ever so incapable of it. It would be absurd to suppose that their inability, into which they criminally plunged themselves, should set aside God's right to perfect obedience from them as his moral subjects. Thus by their wicked apostasy from God, they would have procured an indulgence, to violate his law with impunity. The law still binds to perfection. Hence the command of our Lord, Matthew 5, 48, Be you therefore perfect, even as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. But vows bind only to a conscientious performance, of that which is in our power. Neither may any man bind himself to complete perfection, for this would be binding himself to, what he knew he could not perform, Ecclesiastes 7, 20, for there is not a just man upon earth, that does good and sins not. Would it not be actual perjury for man to swear to do, what the scripture declares he cannot do? No vow, therefore, ought to be made, which cannot fully be kept, by the assistance of the grace of God, in our present and perfect state Psalm 44, 17, the church declares, all this is come upon us, yet have we not forgotten thee, neither have we dealt falsely in thy covenant. Now had covenants bound to complete perfection, neither the church, nor any individual in any period of the world could ever, with propriety, have made such a declaration. 4. The divine law binds to perfection forever. It will be the rule of rectitude, eternally regulating our relation to God the moral governor. Psalm 111, 7, 8, all his commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever. The sum and substance of them, namely love to God and our neighbor, will continue obligatory even in the mansions of immortality. But vows are binding only in this present life. They are intended as auxiliaries in promoting holiness and sanctification. But as at death these arrive at perfection, in the realms of bliss, auxiliary means are unnecessary. In hell they can be of no utility. From thence, there is no redemption, Ecclesiastes 11, 
3. In the place, where the tree falls there it shall be. 5. The divine law is the rule of action. By it all our thoughts, words and actions are to be regulated. Hence, Psalm 119, 96, we are informed that the commandment is exceeding broad. Vows and covenants are only a bond, whereby we solemnly engage to adhere to the sinnering rule. We owe a debt of obedience unto God. His law is the rule, by which the payment is to be regulated as well as the register, wherein the various items of the debt are specified. Our covenants are the bonds wherein we recognize the obligation, and solemnly engage to be conscientious in paying it. Thus says the psalmist, Psalm 119, 106, I have sworn, and I will perform it, that I will keep thy righteous judgments. 6. The divine law binds all men, whether they will or not. All men are the moral subjects of heaven's mighty ruler. They can no more evade the obligation of his law, than they can elope from his dominions. But vows and covenants bind only such as enter into them, either personally or by representation. I suppose the obligation of vows and covenants, upon such as enter into them personally, will be generally admitted. It remains therefore in the 3. Head, to prove the transmission of the obligation of religious covenants to posterity, or those who enter into them representatively. In doing this we shall select some of the scripture passages, which establish the point most clearly. 1. We find posterity recognized in the transaction between God and Jacob, in Bethel, Genesis 28, 13, where the good old patriarch, traveling to Padan Aram, in the visions of the night, had a remarkable interview with God. He engages to give unto Jacob and his seed all the land of Canaan. More than a thousand years from that time, this engagement is pleaded by his posterity, as having been made with them. Hosea 12, 4, in allusion to this transaction, they say, he found him, Jacob, in Bethel, and there he spoke with us. There he covenanted with us in the loins of our father Jacob. 2. We have another remarkable instance of the transmission of covenant obligation to posterity, in Deuteronomy 5, 2, 3, the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even with us, who are all of us here alive this day. There are several things connected with this passage, peculiarly deserving notice. 1. The covenant here alluded to, was made about eight or nine weeks after Israel's departure from Egypt compare Exodus. 12, 6 with 19, 1. 2. It is now the eleventh month of the fortieth year, since they begin their journey, Deuteronomy 1, 1. They are in the plains of Moab by Jordan near Jericho, attending to the rehearsal of the law. 3. All who had actually, and personally for themselves entered into this covenant are now dead save three, namely Moses, Caleb and Joshua, Numbers 26, 64, 65, but among these there was not a man of them whom Moses and Aaron the priest numbered, when they numbered the children of Israel, in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, They shall surely die in the wilderness. And there was not left a man of them, save Caleb the son of Jephon, and Joshua the son of Nun. 4. All the persons now addressed, save Caleb and Joshua, must I there be, such as were minors at the making of this covenant, and so not able to engage for themselves, or such as were born after that period. 
yet mark how Moses addresses them. He declares, The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, that is, with our fathers only, but also with us, even with us who are all of us here alive this day. Can words be more explicit in demonstrating the transmission of covenant obligation to posterity? 3. We have another example of the same kind full in point, Deuteronomy 29, 10-15, which respects the renovation of the Sinai covenant. Here Moses addresses the whole congregation. You stand this day, all of you before the Lord your God, your captains of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, with all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and thy stranger that is in thy camp, from the hewer of thy wood unto the drawer of thy water, that thou should enter into covenant with the Lord thy God, and into his oath, which the Lord thy God maketh with thee this day. To this important duty they are exhorted, from the consideration, that it would be an excellent mean, of establishing them in the land whither they went. Neither, says he, with you only do I make this covenant and this oath, but with him that stands here with us this day, before the Lord our God, and also with him that is not here with us this day. The covenant is here made with persons of three different descriptions. One of them is addressed or spoken to. Neither with you only and etc. intimating that the covenant was made with them but not exclusively others are comprehended. Two descriptions are spoken of. One of these is present, represented by the words, him that stands here with us, and etc. which evidently point out minors, who were yet incapable of covenanting for themselves. The other is absent, namely, him that is not here with us this day. This could have no reference to any of the Israelites then in existence, as they were all present. It must therefore include posterity, yet to be begotten, together with all future accessions to their community, of those then considered strangers and aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. With them, Moses informs us the covenant was made, as well as with those who actually entered into it, in the plains of Moab. 4. Another instance, in which posterity is recognized in covenant obligation, is found in Joshua 9, 15. This covenant was made between the children of Israel, and the Jibaeonites. Between four and five hundred years after the time, the children of Israel are visited with a very severe famine, in the days of David, 2 Samuel 21, 1. And it is expressly declared by the Lord, that it is for Saul, and for his bloody house, because he slew the Jibaeonites. And at the same time, verse 2, that very covenant is recognized, and the breach of it stated, as being the formal reason of the divine displeasure. Now, had it not been for this covenant, the extirpation of the Jibaeonites would not have been imputed to Israel as a thing criminal, for they were comprehended in the Canaanitish nations, which God had commanded them to root out. It may here be thought singular, seeing the Lord had expressly forbidden Israel, to make any league with the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, that, notwithstanding, when they sinfully entered into covenant with them contrary to his command, this deed should be held valid by God, and they punished for the violation of it. Perhaps this difficulty may be solved, by distinguishing the commands of God, into moral natural and moral positive. The former, God commands, because they are necessarily right, and their contrary inconsistent with the perfections of his nature. The latter are right, because God commands them. For anything we know, they flow from his arbitrary will, and, had it pleased him, commands different or contrary would have been equally right. These commands, 
of course, he may reverse whenever he chooses. God's moral subjects have no right of this kind. They are bound to obey everyone, even the least of his commandments. The violation of them is highly criminal. Neither ought we to come under any obligation to do what they forbid. But if any man, or community of men, should ignorantly engage to do what is contrary to a command, which is only moral positive, provided God recognizes the deed, the person or persons are bound, however criminal they were in coming under the obligation. This we presume was the situation of things, in the point before us. Israel was criminal in entering into a league with the Jibaonites, contrary to the command of God. But there was nothing, in the matter of this deed, inconsistent with the divine perfections, or contrary to the moral natural law of God. He could never recognize or sanction an oath, whereby his subjects would be bound to act inconsistently with his divine attributes. 5. Another passage of scripture full in point is found in Jeremiah 11:10. God brings a charge against his people in these words. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Now it would be inconsistent to suppose, that, God would charge any with breach of covenant obligation, except those who had really covenanted, but he charges the house of Israel, and the house of Judah, with breach of covenant obligation, therefore they had really covenanted. But the covenant was made with their fathers, and yet they are considered as really bound, as if it had been actually entered into by themselves. 6. This doctrine is proved also by infant baptism. It would be foreign from the point in hand, to enter upon a probation of the propriety of baptizing infants. This at present I take for granted. To those who admit it, the argument will have the same force, as if it had been proved. Our Westminster divines very justly observe that baptism seals our engrafting into Christ, an engagement to be the Lord's. Baptism, like circumcision, is a seal of the righteousness of the faith, Romans 4, 11, but seals are confirmatory of the deeds to which they are appended, and necessarily involve an obligation. Now when the person baptized, in infancy, comes to maturity he is either bound agreeably to the tenor of the obligation, or he is not. If he is bound, whence does his obligation arise? Not from his own act, for he was merely passive in the whole matter. It must arise from the connection established by divine institution between him and his parent in this particular act. Between the parent and the child there is a representative identification, so that, whatever is actually done by the father in this representative capacity, is virtually done by the child, and thus the deed of the one becomes obligatory upon the other. But supposing the child is not bound, when he arrives at maturity, then his baptism in infancy was useless. It was a mere form and cipher. He wants what was essential to the ordinance, namely obligation to resist the devil, the world and the flesh, and to be for Christ alone. He ought now to be baptized, as having never before received this holy ordinance. 7. The truth of this doctrine may be further illustrated from the common practice of wills, or testamentary deeds among men. By these the heirs of the testator are bound. It may be here objected, that the example is not to the point, because the legatees are bound only in consequence of their coming into the possession of the deceased's inheritance, but should they disclaim all interest in the estate, the obligation would not extend to them. Be it so. Then it will at least follow, 
that those who choose to enter upon the religious inheritance of their ancestors, are bound by their deeds. But is it a mere optional thing, whether they receive the inheritance or not? In whatever our ancestors erred, their deeds could neither bind themselves nor us. But, so far as they were right, we are bound to enter upon the inheritance, and endeavor to transmit it, with all possible improvements to posterity. See Psalm 78, 1. Having thus endeavored to prove the transmission of covenant obligation to posterity, it may be proper in the 4. Head, to inquire into the reason of this obligation. How does it come, that a man is bound by a deed, done a thousand years, before he was in existence? 1. God will have it so. It is fixed by his divine appointment, Psalm 76, 11. He commands his people to enter into covenant. Vow, and pay unto the Lord your God. And, in the preceding head of this discourse, we have endeavored to prove that God considers posterity bound, by the covenants of their ancestors. Though we could assign no other reason than the divine authority, this would be sufficient. God has a right to appoint any ordinance in his house that he thinks proper. We have no right to be curious about the reason of this, more than about any of his other institutions, unless he is pleased to tell us. But we can give other reasons. 2. Another reason arises from the permanency of the subject coming under obligation. It was already hinted, that the subjects of delegated power were, first, persons in their personal capacities and second, corporations in their corporate capacities. For distinction's sake, we shall denominate the former a physical and the latter a legal individual. Suppose the first has come under the obligation of a personal covenant, binding him to a conscientious performance of all commanded duties, though his system be daily losing and gaining, both in a corporeal and mental point of view agreeably to the laws by which his physical constitution is regulated, yet he still continues the same individual, and consequently lies under the same obligation to duty. All the accessions, which his body and mind are constantly receiving, are still enlisted in the service of Jesus. The moral law recognizes him as bound to exercise every acquirement of body and mind, in subservience to the religion of Messiah. Through all his changes and vicissitudes, his personal identity continues, and consequently his personal obligation. This holds equally true with a corporation or legal individual. It is constantly gaining and losing constituent members, but still remains the same corporation, though not even one of those who were its original members continue to exist. Such legal individuals are not chimerical things. God himself has instituted them. The whole human family is one great corporation. It existed in Adam. To him the charter was given in the name of all his posterity, Genesis 2, 17. All are born under its influence, and subjected to all its requisitions. The language of its sanction is recorded Galatians 3, 10. Cursed is everyone that continues not in all things, which are written in the book of the law to do them. At present this is all the inheritance of its constituent members, for God has concluded all under sin. Romans 3, 10. There is none righteous, no, not one. Out of the shattered fragments of this old corporation, God has organized a new one. This is his church. Her charter is the everlasting covenant, the first enunciation of which, we have Genesis 3, 15. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel.
the permanency of this corporation is secured by the stipulation of the everlasting covenant, Isaiah 53, 11. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. And in Psalm 72, 5, its duration is guaranteed by the promise of the Father, they shall fear thee, as long as the sun and moon endure, throughout all generations. The indestructibility of this corporation being thus established, it follows, that every constitutional obligation, under which it laid itself, to the performance of duties, in their nature moral, still binds this permanent society, in the same manner as a physical individual is bound, by a personal covenant, to God, as long as he lives. Everything in the Jewish covenants, of this description, namely in its nature moral, and not belonging to their ceremonial, ritual or judicial policy, still continues obligatory on the Christian church, in all its multiplied ramifications. The corporation is the same. The charter is the same. The governor the same. The administration has never experienced any interregnum. The temporary institutions, whereby Jesus was adumbrated under the Old Testament, have been abrogated, the shadows have given way to the substance, and the types to the anti-type. But the corporation is indestructible. It is now the same church that was in Egypt, and that traveled through the wilderness. The Christian church becomes the seed of Abraham, and is entitled to all the privileges of the Abrahamic covenant, Galatians 3, 29. If you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. This idea of continuity of the church, under the Old and New Testament dispensations, is beautifully illustrated, Romans 11, 17. Here the continuity of the church is introduced under the emblem of a tree, having first natural, and secondly engrafted branches. It is still the same tree, though the former be replaced by the letter. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in amongst them, and with them partakes of the root and fatness of the olive tree. The church therefore, remaining the same, we, by our junction with it, are become Abraham's seed, and heirs of all the promises and obligations of the Abrahamic corporation. If this be denied, I confess I am wholly unable to prove, upon rational grounds, the transmission of covenant obligation to posterity. The general sense of mankind may be brought as a corroboration of this idea. The debts lawfully contracted by the government of a nation, continue obligatory upon the said nation, if not liquidated though all the people living, when they were contracted should be extinct. The national debt incurred in the reign of William III attaches to the British nation at this day, though not one of the persons who constituted the nation, when this debt was contracted, is now alive. If this be denied, there is an end to all national confidence. If this idea be admitted, then it will follow, that all Christians are covenanters, in virtue of being component parts of that same church which covenanted in Horeb. In this corporation smaller ones are included, such as particular churches and nations, which may also lawfully covenant unto God. These covenants differ from those of the Jewish church, inasmuch as the latter bind all Christian churches, whereas the former bind only the particular churches or nations which enter into them. 3. Another reason of the transmission of obligation from preceding to succeeding generations of the same corporation arises from sameness of relation to the moral governor of the universe. The corporation collectively, 
and all its members individually, must necessarily be related to God, as moral subjects to a rightful sovereign. It has been already observed, that the rule of this relation, is the moral law. By this law they are naturally and necessarily bound. And as in religious covenants, they bind themselves to a conscientious observance of what it requires, the obligation must be perpetual, because the thing required is always substantially the same. Obligation to God may, and does, accumulate upon moral subjects, but it cannot be diminished. Today I swear to a conscientious performance of duty to God, whatever superadded obligation this oath may lay me under is equally binding tomorrow, and no reason can be assigned for its dissolution, on any succeeding day of my life, any more than on tomorrow. The parties are the same. The relation is the same. The rule of this relation identically the same. And what circumstance can be supposed to occur which can possibly lose me, from the obligation under which I have laid myself, to perform the duties required by this rule. The same holds good with a corporation or society, while it continues to exist. Hence, the advocate in behalf of his client will plead an act passed in the time of Henry VIII. He is right in doing so. The act, if moral, bound the national society at the time it was passed. This society is still the same. 4. There is another reason for the descending obligation of covenants, which arises from the impossibility of liquidating the debt, contracted by covenanting, in such a manner, that none of the contents of the bond shall still remain due. It must indeed be acknowledged, that there are various debts due to men, which may be completely discharged, and the obligation of payment ceases with their liquidation. But the debt we owe to God, namely, obedience to the moral law even though perfectly paid remains perfectly obligatory. This arises from the nature of the relation, which moral subjects must necessarily hold to the supreme governor, and the law by which that relation behoves to be regulated. A debt of obedience arises out of this relation. The law regulates its payment. Both of these are permanent. If I give my bond for the payment of a debt, does not this bind me? either as long as the debt remains due, or till such security becomes necessary. Religious covenants are bonds, by which individuals and societies bind themselves unto God. They continue obligatory while the subjects of them respectively remain in life. For, seeing the debt remains constantly the same, no proper reason can be given for diminishing my obligation to payment. 5. The transmission of covenant obligation appears from the permanency of the reason, on account of which the covenant was originally entered into. Covenanting is considered as a mean of holiness and uniform regularity of life. Where is the man who with propriety can say, yesterday such a mean was advantageous, today I have no need of it? Would not this be inconsistent with the imperfect state of sanctification in the present life? The obligation of the covenant must therefore continue as long as this mean is necessary. 6. The example of the flock which has gone before us, and which we are commanded to follow, carries in it an obligation. So far as the saints, who have gone before us, have followed Christ, we are bound to follow them. Thus the command of the Lord Jesus Christ to his spouse, Go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock. To whatever attainments in reformation, they may have reached, we are bound to adhere, Philippians 3, 16. Whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. 
their faithful contendings for and diligent investigations of truth, which have come to our knowledge, carry with them an obligation to go and do likewise. It is a feature of our moral nature, that obligation increases with light and information. This is evident from the declaration of our Lord, Luke 12, 47, 48. And that servant which knew his Lord's will, and prepared not himself neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not, and did commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required and to, whom that have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Having thus endeavored to investigate some of the reasons, why covenant obligation is transmitted from generation to generation, we shall in the 5. Head, endeavor to show the morality of the duty in New Testament times. 1. It was expressly commanded under the Old Testament dispensation, Psalm 76, 11. Vow, and pay unto the Lord your God. It behoves those, who deny its obligation in New Testament times, to prove that it was not, in its nature, a moral duty, but belonging to the ceremonial law, or judicial policy of the Jews. But this I presume will not be easily done. It was a type, where is its antitype? What peculiarity was there, in the circumstances of the Jews, rendering it expedient for them, to bind themselves to serve the Lord, while Christians are exempted from every such obligation? It seems to be the bent of the present generation, to get rid of all the obligations contained in the Old Testament. These deistical Christians, if I may be allowed the expression resemble the children of old, who spoke half in the language of Canaan, and half in the language of Ashdod. But the Old and New Testaments ought to be considered as the two statute books of heaven. All the statutes contained in the former book, remain binding upon the conscience, if not repealed in the latter, either by express precept, necessary deduction, or approved example. Therefore, before the doctrine of governing is rejected, it ought to be proved, that it has been abrogated by the authority of that divine legislator who first appointed it. It would be but reasonable to allow us the same privilege, in quoting the statutes of heaven, that every lawyer has in referring to acts of parliament. Though these were made in the reign of Alfred the Great, and thirty folio volumes intervened between that in which these acts are contained, and the one in which those of the present age are recorded, yet, if they are not repealed by some subsequent act, they remain obligatory on a nation. By these the most important suits will be decided. Why should we deny the same authority to the unrepealed statutes of the King of Nations? 2. Scripture prophecies evidently referring to New Testament times, mention its approbation, Isaiah 19, 18. In the day, namely the Gospel day or New Testament times shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan, and swear to the Lord of hosts. And in the twenty-first verse, we are told, the Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord and shall do sacrifice and oblation. A collateral or, at least, a consequential part of their character is, that, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord, and perform it. This is predicated of them as a national deed, done in a collective, social or corporate capacity. Its general practice among the Christianized Gentiles, their mutual cooperation in the cause of God, and the smile of divine approbation, which they shall enjoy in so doing, are beautifully painted out in the 23, 24, 
25 verses. In the day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria and the Egyptians shall serve the Assyrians. In the day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land. Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Bless be Egypt my people, and Assyria the work of my hands and Israel mine inheritance. 3. The New Testament itself seems to recognize the duty, 2 Corinthians 8, 1. The Apostle speaks highly to the commendation of the liberality of the church in Macedonia, and their willingness to contribute to the assistance of the poor saints at Jerusalem, and in verse 50 declares, And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord, and unto us by the will of God. Here we have the language of covenanting, and every reason to believe that the thing existed also. What can be meant by this twofold surrender of themselves, first unto God and afterwards unto the saints? It cannot, as some think, refer to their junction with the church, for they were organized into a church capacity, previously to their solemn surrender. In the first verse they are called the churches of Macedonia, which implies their ecclesiastical organization. Neither can this passage, as others allege, refer to the celebration of the sacramental feast. If it did, is it not strange, that this act should exceed the apostles' hopes and expectations of them? Was it not rather a thing, which he had full reason to expect? The neglect of the duty in these circumstances might hereby have disappointed his expectations. Lately organized in a church state, possessing the glow and ardour, which almost universally animate the hearts of new converts, they would long after, and earnestly desire the sacramental feast. This act, whereby they gave themselves unto God and etc. must therefore, in all probability, be solemn, social covenanting. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.